You are listening to the Golden Voice Podcast, and I'm your host, Jarvis Smith. I want to say thank you so much for checking out all our past episodes right here on season two. We've been speaking to guests like Priya Ragu, Edie, Lindsay Lomas, so it means so much. And if you're new to the Golden Voice Podcast, we got a lot of content for you to absorb. So if it's the holidays and you're checking out the Golden Voice Podcast for the first time, or you're checking out the Golden Voice Podcast down the line in the future, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time. We mean it a lot. So definitely check out some of the episodes we've done for season two right now for the episodes we've done in season one. And just, man, I appreciate you just riding with us and rocking with us because today we have a very special bonus episode for you. You see here, we celebrated National Hip Hop History Month with a virtual live panel that we did with two hip hop icons, Elliot Wilson and Steve Rifkin. They came right here for this awesome panel. So we have recorded it and, we, and now we're going to share the recorded panel that we had right here on the Golden Voice podcast. And this is so epic to have this conversation celebrating National Hip Hop History Month in the month of November of 2022, but also just hearing the stories of Steve Rifkin and Elliot Wilson about their careers. So before I get there, I got to read this disclaimer provided by our parent company, AEG. So let me go ahead and do that right now. AEG provided this virtual event for its employees, but it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of AEG policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by AEG. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by AEG employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of AEG or any of its officials. All right, let's go ahead and get this conversation started for this panel in its original form. Here we go right now. In 2001, Congress declared this month, November, National Hip Hop History Month. In particular, there was a bill that was co-sponsored and created by Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Congressman Jamal Bowman and under the leadership of Senator Chuck Schumann to recognize and celebrate hip hop's lasting influence on American culture. So today, in collaboration with Golden Voice, GV Black, the Golden Voice Podcast, the Black Equity Group at AEG, and AEG Presents, we proudly bring to you today's Hip Hop History Month panel with two amazing icons in hip hop. So, are you ready for these introductions? Let me go ahead and do the very first one. Our very first panelist is an American hip hop journalist and historian, most notable for his tenures at Eagle Trip and XXL Magazine, but he would evolve from all that and become the founder of the popular media platform Rap Radar that would also evolve into the cultural influential podcast by the same name, the Rap Radar podcast, interviewing such artists as Jay-Z, Drake, J. Cole, and the late Nipsey Hussle with his co-host B-Dot. He is the current chief content officer at Tidal and has one of the most iconic laughs in hip hop. I'm talking about Elliot Wilson. Yes, sir. Thank you, Jarvis. Yes, yes. And our second panelist is an American music executive, most notable for his tenures as the founder of Loud and SRC Records, signing such artists as Wu-Tang Clan, Mob Deep, Big Pun, Twista, 3-6 Mafia, <laughs> Exhibit, Akon, and Mel uh, Melanie Fiona. He also was even the manager of New Edition and DMX. And if that was enough, he was behind producing the iconic motion picture Paid in Full. Right now, he is a current founder and executive at the newly revamped Spring Sound music label. And we're talking about the chairman of some of hip hop's most iconic albums, Steve Rifkin. Steve, Elliot, how are y'all feeling? How are y'all doing? Welcome to the panel. Um, I'm feeling great, man. I just went on a six mile run walk um 
I'm just feeling good. I was excited about today. Today's a special day. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, awesome. And, th and this is the first time me and Elliot have really ever done something together. It's crazy, so, right? I yeah, was thinking yeah. about that, you know, especially how connected we both are to Wu-Tang. I mean, you started all with the Wu and like, you know, me knowing RZA from the beginning. I like we never even really had a real conversation about like some of the stuff we were going through at that time, you know? So, um, so I'm just excited. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and just thinking about today and what it means, you know, just, uh, you know, as I was saying about how National Hip Hop History Month came into action for you both on a personal level. And I want to start with you, Steve. You know, what does it mean celebrating National Hip Hop History Month? I mean, the celebration is a celebration. You know, it's like when my dad, I don't know if people know this, you know, my family put out the first hip hop record. Mm -hmm. um, Batback Band, Kington III. So. Granted, you know, hip hop started, the culture started way before, but in 1979, you know, we're talking, you know, today, I mean, you know, close to 45 years that, you know, there, there's a celebration now. So it deserves to be celebrated and it really is the forefront and the leader of culture movement on, on, on all aspects of life. Yeah. And I think, and I think, and I think we take great pride in it because we loved it. And like, you know, in the beginning of hip hop was like, well, is it like disco? Is it going to be a fad? Is it going to be long lasting? And I think we all believed in it. We believed the hip hop, the power of hip hop and rap music that was going to continue to triumph. And, you know, we were validated. So now even when small things happen, like when artists get booked on late night television, it's still a win to me. You know, I'm still excited. The fan of me feels like that's an accomplishment. Like, you know, I was talking to a young artist, Babyface Ray yesterday from Detroit, and he's about to do. Uh, Jimmy Fallon next next month or something for his project and he's nervous and I'm trying to explain to him you know they let you rehearse it a couple times and you know but that's a big deal for when hip hop's on that national stage and they get that look so even today with all our accomplishments I still appreciate it and I think it you know I think sometimes we take it for granted when we go to a, a coffee shop and they're playing like Tribe Called Quest low or they're playing Lauren Hill because you know men, men like Steve Rifkin and myself we had to break these barriers down you know to get to this place so I'm always feeling celebratory when hip hop is being recognized. Amazing. I love hearing this right here. And just to kind of stick to this idea, you know, just reflecting about your earlier parts of your careers, when did you both know that like hip hop was going to be your calling? Like, this is it. There's no turning back. I'm going to make this not only my career, but this is going to be part of my life going forward. Uh, Elliot? Well, starting just from the fan perspective, uh, growing up in Queens, Run DMC was like, they were superheroes to me. You know, I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm like 13 years old. And like, you know, I, I knew about you know, I'd heard about the Cold Crushes and the Grandmaster Flashes, and I knew somewhat, but then some about Run DMC, it just felt like it was bigger than even anything that was going on in the local boroughs. It was like nationwide, it felt urgent. And they just seemed like the coolest guys. And like the whole setup was Run DMC, Genesee, the outfits, all the photos were iconic and amazing. The live show, like, you know, it just felt like this is powerful. And like, these guys are from Queens, they're from like where I'm from, like, and they're conquering the world. So that made me feel like the power of hip hop as a fan. But then, in terms of media, it was really seeing early versions of the Source magazine and understanding that, like, there was this business behind the music. And my only goal was to be music editor because I wanted to be the guy that got all the music first and gave the mics out because that was, like, how important that was in our era. It meant so much. So I didn't even want to be editor-in-chief. I just wanted to be the music editor. That was my only goal, career goal. Um, and I was able to accomplish that, you know, in, in 96. So that's really what it was. Like, I wanted to be connected. I felt like this music was my music. And I wanted to possess and have every vinyl, cassette, single, CD, whatever was available, I wanted a copy of it. 
Yeah, uh, just real quick. I think I read an article uh, or a video about you being at the source, and then you you would like have your door closed, and you'd just be blasting hip hop music and just in it playing loud yeah. records, playing yeah. playing Mob Deep albums and shit. And then they, I remember I was bumping Mob Deep so loud one day, uh, Maze popped in and was just like, oh, "Okay, you you know your stuff, you know your stuff." Da, 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 da. We all love Mob Deep. So yeah, I would play like the most darkest hip hop shit. Like I I play I did all every a whole work day. I was like, this is an incredible incredible job I have where. I could listen to hip hop all day and I'm literally calling publicists, you know, trying to get new copies of music sent to me all day. Like I was a kid in a candy store. It was great. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Steve, same question. When did you know it was your calling? Um, that's a great question. So I didn't know really when it was my calling. Um, you know, I was majorly dyslexic as a kid growing up. Um, you know, I didn't know how to read or write till I was 14, 15 years old. I got into a lot of trouble, you know, and I had to go to juvie. And, but I didn't have to sleep there. Um, because they didn't know what dyslexia was in, in those days. So make a long story short, my grandfather called me, um, who was living down in Florida. He goes, I need to see you ASAP. And, you know, between in those days, God and him were the only two people I was petrified of. And um, he said, you could end up dead or in jail. And... You, you got to do something with your life. And I go, well, what am I going to do? You know, the only thing I know how to do is not good things. And, um, and, and the truth of the matter is I didn't need to do it because my family was good. My family, my dad had a really successful record label. You know, he had the Fatback Band. He had James Brown. He had Millie Jackson. He had Joe Simon. He had Jimmy Spicer, which was Russell's. We gave Russell his first record deal. Wow. So, but I was just looking for attention and I realized I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player. He goes, well, why don't you do promotion? I'm like, what's promotion? He goes, your cousin does it at Polydor Records. I'm like, what is that? He goes, you get records played on the radio. <laughs> and um, he goes, I'll call your father. I go, my father wants nothing to do with me. And just like, he goes, I'll handle it. A few days go by. My grandfather calls me up again. He goes, pick me up at the airport at two o'clock. All right, you know, Eastern Airlines. Go Eastern. <laughs> I go to JFK, pick up because we're going into the city. And um, we're going into the city. And, and the fucked up thing is I pick him up in a stolen car. Wow. So I didn't know how to tell him. Like, I didn't know we were going into the city. And um, go into the city. And um, they tell me they're going to, my father and uncle both tell me they're going to send me on the road. <laughs> and there's a radio stations. And they said, whose car is this? And I, I mean, and I had a lie. And I'm, when I'm saying I was petrified of my grandfather, I was petrified of my grandfather. And um, I said it was a friend of mine's parents' car. And we drove back, dropped him off <laughs> at my house. And I just dropped the car off somewhere. And um, that was that. And then a week later, I ended up going on the road, visiting radio stations. And the, the record, the first record I had was a Jimmy Spicer record, which was Dollar Bill, y'all. Mm, so don't forget, don't forget, there were no cell phones. There was no GPS. I didn't know how to read a map. I didn't know how to do it. So, and I had, I had a shitload of cash. And like twenty dollars worth of quarters, 
to call each radio station that I had to go to and write the directions down. And the first station I went to was a station in Mobile, Alabama. So I drove from Florida. I flew back to Florida with, with my uh, grandfather. I got there for two days and then drove down to um, Florida. But when, it was, when I think it became my calling was two or three years later, when Run DMC performed at Madison Square Garden, and I think, I don't know if it was Mother's Day or Father's Day, but I know it was in June. So I think it had to be Father's Day. And, um, and they said, everybody lift your sneaker in the air. Woo! 20,000 people, right? And Nike just came out, but I mean, every Adidas. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I, I, I had an anxiety attack. I mean, I was like, motherfucker. I'm so jealous of you, Steve. I'm so jealous that you was in the house for that, I'm man. Right? God damn. Right? So I knew Russell. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, so at, at the at the end of the day, I was like, "This is crazy." And I went with a friend of mine, who was um, putting himself through law school, and he said there should be a, a rap cartoon show. And I was like, "You're right. Let, let's let's talk to Russell." You know, and we spoke to Russell, and we, we we tried doing it, and you know, he was all over the place. Lior actually just started working with Russell at that time, and um. And I'm not even sure if there was Def Jam yet, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. But there was Def Jam, but not through Sony, independently. Yep. And um, Purple label. <laughs> yeah. And um, we bullshitted our way into a meeting with a guy by the name of Jules Bass, who owned a company called Rankin Bass. And they had the number one cartoon show called Thundergaps. Mm. So yeah. they said, yeah, we, we want to do it. And, you know, but it was like, we'll put a rap group together. But. They didn't want, but they wanted the characters to be frogs so they could be no color. Wow. Jeez. Um, or, or just neutral. And we were like, we were like, so-so, but you know what? They were giving us really good money. And um, EMI and Capital had a new label um, that just started called Manhattan Records. And um, a guy by the name of Bruce Garfield and Jerry Griffith um, bless us and they gave us a record deal for a, a non-group just an idea that we had to put a group together and they gave us a quarter of a million dollars in 1980 when did crush group come out 83 80, 82 84? 84 i think let me check so right right around that time and it, it was unheard of and the deal fell through with Rankin and Bass because they wanted an exact release date. And Capital couldn't commit that because God forbid if there was a problem, you know, don't forget, this is what wasn't digital at the time. This is when you had pressing plants. Yeah. And there was always strikes and bootlegs and everything. So if you're off by an hour, you're you're in breach. So the deal fell through at the last second, but um that was um that's when I knew hip hop was here to stay. And that's when I said, you know what, this is, I'm making this my full-time job.
Man, this is amazing, Steve. I, I love hearing that so much, man. I, it's safe to say, like, hip hop saved your life with, with just the, the whole journey, the, the lineage. It was like a you know epic odyssey that that it took you from where you started to where you are right now. And I think that's the the amazing thing about it, what it does for so many different people. A person like myself who also suffers from dyslexia, I can definitely relate to just understanding the style and, and the importance of the lyrics of hip hop, and it's just showing you there's just different ways to present yourself. You know, to fit into one box. So to see your journey is fucking inspiring. To just see that straight up honestly. And, and, and I want to jump into some solo questions right now. Uh, and I want to start off with you, Elliot, you know, your iconic career in print and media and journalism. You know, what was it like for you to work at Eagle Trip? And then of course, Double XL, um, just from your experiences, because of course, Eagle Trip, you're on the ground starting your own thing. And then Double XL, you're kind of coming into yourself as an editor in chief. So for you, like, what was that like? Yeah, I think I didn't, like I said, I had a dream to work at the source, but I didn't really understand the music industry or know the business. Like Steve's talking about these labels and people involved. So I was more just a fan wanting to be a writer and not understanding that, you know, who I need to connect with. So I met a brother named Sasha Jenkins, who now is going on to be a great film director and does stuff with Mass Appeal. And he had an independent New York magazine called a newspaper, we called it really called Beatdown. It was literally printed as a newspaper, it was a hip hop newspaper. And he had like House of Pain and Cypress Hill on the cover. And I'm like, what's this? And I met him at a party and it was his it was his periodical that he was putting out independently and distributing it through the New York City streets and in other markets. And um, I wanted to be, again, be a music editor. I was like, I'll be a music editor. I want to get down. So I got down with him. We did that for a year and a half. And then Ego Trip was us saying we want to do our own thing. Me and Sasha was going to partner up and do an independent zine that would cover hip hop and Rock and all, all cultures, but hip hop at the forefront. You know, we felt the kids were listening to Dr. Dre and Red Hot Chili Peppers. The worlds were emerging and no one was really documenting that. So we jumped in and started doing that. And then we got some friends together, you know, Chairman Mao, Brent Rollins, um, Gabe Alvarez. So the five of us kind of formed this unit. You know, hip hop, you want to have a crew, right? So we was the crew of these writers and creatives and Ego Trip was fun. And then that led to me finally getting my job at the source to be the music editor that I was dreaming of being. So, you know, those times were fun, man. We we basically were learning the business independently, like just because we felt like we had to put ourselves in the game. You know, we didn't know people yet. So we just was like moving with the place of like, we want to be recognized and we're going to get our voices out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I, the You know, I definitely was a reader in the early 2000s, back when I thought that my life career was going to be a rapper, not a ticketing manager. And, uh, and, and, and I was, uh, you know, I was, I was reading the source, but I was reading double XL magazine too. And, and I leaned towards more double XL magazine. And it was just the, the editorials. It, it was it was the editorials that you had in there. It was just like just the whole entire review system. It was the, the cover artist. And, and I had to ask as a follow up question for you, Elliot, too, is, you know, do you remember working on issue number 45 of the double XL magazine? That is the for people who don't know, that is the iconic cover of Dr. Dre, Eminem. And at the time, the up and coming rise of 50 Cent early 2003, 2004. That was a moment for so many different reasons, but for you, from your perspective, what was it like working on that issue? That's, it was a game changer because it was the first time that uh, we actually did outsell the source. I mean, the source was a juggernaut. Source was selling like close to 400,000, half a million copies a month. Like they were unstoppable. They were the Bible of hip hop. Um, so when I left the source in 98 and I got to double XL 99, I was feeling very competitive and I was like, I'm going to do a better magazine than them. And nobody believed I could do it. And that was the first time that, so that's a four year journey to get to 03. That issue with MJ and 50 was the first time it actually did outsell the source. And then it went back to the source being number one <laughs> for another two years. But then in 05, we eventually became 
uh, the leader in the space. But, you know, what people may not know is that Eminem, you know, was known for the conflict that Eminem had with the source. But when I took over Double XL, Eminem had a conflict with XXL at the time because they had written a negative article about, you know, questioning a white rapper. Or could a white rapper be a star? You know, we all were kind of sting from the Vanilla Ice situation. So they wrote something very critical. So when I took over Double XL, my main goal was to try to resolve things with Eminem and get Eminem on board with Double XL. And that didn't happen until 50 Cent signed with Eminem. We have been supporting 50 Cent because we recognize like this guy's really killing the underground. And I've never seen this thing where like everybody at the cubicle, everybody on my staff is listening to 50 Cent. Like he isn't signed to a major label, but there's something going on with this guy. And he was so hardworking and he would show up. And so we just kept putting him in the magazine every month and supporting him. So when he signed to Eminem and Dr. Dre, we were like, yo, is he going to say he can't mess with us anymore because Eminem's not messing with us? But it actually brought us all together. So then I sat with Paul Rosenberg and we, we mapped out that cover. And I just I, and I went into the meeting just wanting a 50 cent cover with no drama. I just wanted 50 cent in the cover. And then Paul says, how would you like to do Eminem, Dr. Dre and 50 cent? And I'm like, OK, yes, that would be amazing. So that's really how it happened, man. And that that, that was the beginning of like the belief that I really could do this and this magazine could really be the leader in the space. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Like I said, iconic cover. I literally remember bringing that to, to, to junior high school. Someone like, I'm going to borrow it real quick. I'm going to give it back to you. And I had to remind the person, hey, man, I'll let you borrow that issue number 45 XXL. Can I have it back? I'm going to get it back to you soon. It was a whole thing. But that cover was so iconic. I mean, it, it's just legendary. So that story right there is amazing. And, and Steve, going to you right now, you know, a uh, solo question for you. As a founder of Loud Records, which for people who don't know, that also stands for listeners of urban dialect. Uh, the the context of that of that name, Loud Records. You know, what album do you feel define the core of that label? Great question. So everybody's going to think I'm going to say Wu Tang. Wu Tang was again, my, like literally the first, my first platinum, my first plaque, my my first everything. But if I couldn't follow up with anything from that, then I would have had nothing. So to me, what made, say, the loud sound was the Mob Deep album. Mm. Because it stayed in the same lane. It was underground. It crossed over on its own. Like, we didn't jam it to radio. We, the only thing that we jammed it to, you know, we had to just make sure the streets were covered. And it was the perfect follow-up to Wu-Tang. And then to me, that's when Loud really became a brand. Like yeah. we weren't we we weren't a fluke. Like we knew what we were coming with. Like we, we, we had we had great success with the alcoholics, right? And didn't catch a plaque, but that was West Coast, right? We had okay success with Twista, who was the first artist on Loud, and then there was another group out of LA called Madcap, which we did okay, and we made Madcap. money. Yeah, we made money on everybody, but not home runs right so the licks really the licks was our first one that you know was like an extra base like you know it was a double or a triple then Wu came and just hit it out of the fucking park and then and then the same thing oh then we had a flex album which nobody thought those numbers were ever going to do anything and we come back from christmas and we're just about fucking gold like we're like an event michelle I had a record called Every Day, Every Night, um, and it did what it did. But when Mob came, right, Mob came, I think, April 25th, 1995, mm -hmm. it really gave it's us 
Infamous, right? Infamous. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was the perfect follow-up to to Wu, and then we were following up with a Raekwon solo record. You've been links three months later, and then Iconic. it was like, and but but then we didn't miss. Yeah. Amazing. And just, just hearing that. And, and, you know, I guess one thing for you, Steve, too, just speaking as a, as a, as a label executive like yourself, you know, you know, you had a really unique knack for like pairing up your artists when they would go on tour with like the, the popular rock artists at the time. You talked about one point taking Wu-Tang when they were on the Wu-Tang Forever project, which was a huge one too. Uh, and, and you paired them up on tour with, like, with Rage Against the Machine and, and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of curious, like that was, to me, that's like so out of the out of the box at that time, thinking like to pair up hip hop and rock, because there still was like a separation. It's not as mixed as it is now with people listening to everything on their playlist or whatever. So like what was going through your mind when you would do unique things like that to kind of get your artists to stand out on like putting them on a tour with maybe a rock artist or something like that. What was going through your mind? I I, I didn't look at Wu Tang as a hip hop group. I mean, I I just looked at them huh? as, as a straight group. Um, I remember my co-head of promotion, a guy by the name of Mojo Nicosia, and him and my brother ran promotion. Um, we were walking on Melrose to the deli. Our office was on Melrose, where actually where Cookies is now. We used to own the building. Um, <laughs> and there was a white kid with long ass hair. With the Wu Tang Scully, with the, the this man singing Wu Tang Clan ain't not the fuck with on the skateboard, <laughs> and and I was like, you know what? This is everything what what I thought it should be. And I called uh, Rage's manager and I asked when they were going on tour, and everything just worked out perfection, you know. And it was just like, would you want Wu? You know, because they weren't your typical rap group. I mean, there were nine guys in the in, in the group. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. And then too, you know, Steve, you know, thinking about your your time working with all these different talents and artists, just thinking about DMX, thinking about Wu Tang Clan. What are some of your favorite memories of just being around them and just working with them overall? I mean, we we, we still. I mean, we're going on thirty years, so it's just like you know when they just did, you know, the New York State of Mind tour with Nas and Busta. I mean, I did like six or seven shows you know i mean i i just had tears in my eyes 30 fucking years later it, it's mm. you know it, it was really amazing and then you know with dmx unfortunately i was really there only at the end of his career um you know we were setting up a, a major tour and we were setting up you know and i brought him back to def jam but you know and i i thank swiss you know d and wap for bringing me into part of the you know the rough riders family you know, but unfortunately, you know, we never had a chance to really do that run. But he was another type of one who could have performed with a rock act at any time and just go. And, and that's really what the, the, the plan was. Amazing, oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Just like hearing that right there. And, you know, for everyone else that's in the chat right now, I definitely see some of the comments are coming through. Super awesome. Please be sure to uh, leave your questions in the chat as well, because we're going to be a moment where you guys can ask Elliot and Steve a question here. But I do want to go back to some group questions for both of y'all right now. And um, I want to talk just about really quickly, you know, thinking about the influence of hip hop. You know, what do you believe is the role that the music plays in culture from a national and then a global level as far as like just impact? I mean, for me, music is the biggest, first of all, it's the closest thing to God, right? I mean, it just, it, it touches your spirit, it, it touches your soul. 
It makes you happy. It makes you sad. But if you look at every brand, right? And if you look at, not, not, not excuse, like if, if you take what Jimmy did with Beats and Puff did with uh, Sean John or Ciroc or what Russell did with Fat Farm or, you know, just, it all comes from music and, and it all is a music marketing formula with that success. So to me, that's why music really drives culture. And, I, and, I, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about, doesn't have to necessarily be hip hop. It could be a country, it could be mainstream. It could be, you know, even though hip hop is mainstream now, it's just find your niche and, and find your base. And, and, and music is the driving force behind that. Yeah, I think hip hop we're in the forefront. We're leaders, you know, we're leading pop culture. Like, like Steve's saying, like in everything, you feel the presence of hip hop culture. In the NBA, you feel it. In, in marketing, everything that we do, um, I feel very validated by it and feel like inspired by it daily. Like, I think that you know, I think hip hop helped elect Barack Obama. It's made changes politically. It's done everything across the board, and it'll continue to do that. You know, and we and we all have our own maintenance with it, right? I see those sometimes it's articles like, well, it's hip hop. Uh, not as dominant on the charts as it was. Should we be concerned? But I was like, you know, that's just the, that's just how the music cycle goes. You know, we have our ups and downs. I mean, I think the most encouraging thing is that you know there are new voices coming into the culture, and I think that's really what the base of it is. Still very youth oriented. You see what our power has done. What we've turned TikTok into. You know what I mean? It's basically this sort of curated experience of like what we think is important and sharing it with our peers and sharing it with the world. And that's sort of community is the foundation of hip hop. So I see hip hop in all. That we do. Yeah, I love that so much. And then to even with some people, what do you guys feel about some people that try to constantly still to this day paint this, you know, negative picture of hip hop being only one thing, only celebrating, you know, the negative aspects of, of life and, and, and all this type of stuff like that. Or they point towards some of the unfortunate passings of certain people in hip hop and label it the, the most dangerous, you know, thing you could be a part of. How do you feel about that when you still hear those type of comments, especially with your tenures in the game? I mean, to me, it's it's ignorance. I mean, what, when Woodstock or what was the concert with the Rolling Stones is one of my favorite groups of all time. What nine people got stabbed and killed and and you know just st stampeded on. I forget which concert it was, but it's um it's ignorance. It's like you know really do your research. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, what what happened with Travis? You know, uh, you know, don't blame Travis on that blame whoever really put that show together Tra tra you know tra travis is an artist um and you know for him to get the backlash like that is 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 wrong and like you know music is music and people go to these shows to have a good time and to hear their favorite groups their favorite songs and release whatever needs whatever release they need to release. So I, I, I just find it ignorant and I, and, I, and I get really, really frustrated. It's like, who are we to shut somebody down? It's like, shit happens and it's horrible. Like, but at the end of the day, you know, the artists are here to make music, right? And that's what they want to do. And, and that's their love. And, and, that's, and they got to support their families. And they got to support, you know, you don't think that they're having guilt of like, holy shit, did this happen? 
when something happened, um, Puff and Hev were throwing a, a celebrity basketball game in New York. Yeah. And a lot of people got got crushed. Hev was like a brother to me. He was never the same. So it's straight ignorance when people just want to stop pointing the fingers. And yeah. it really bothers the shit out of me. Absolutely. Uh, Elliot, do you have any uh, insight yeah, to I mean, that? I think inherently another direction. I just think, you know, we we always were underdog culture, you know what I mean? And we always are facing the adversity. And I think that when you look even side of it, you know, the moves of a Jay-Z or a Puffy, like when these guys, you know, become these true businessmen, right, become these moguls, you know, we're challenging this system. We're challenging, you know, for social justice, some of the moves you see Jay and McNose arena. So I think inherently we're, we have to, we're facing that adversity and it only makes us stronger. I just think that's always been a foundation of our culture. And yes, we've gone through tough things, man. We lost Biggie and Pac. We lost like the biggest artists at that time, six months apart. We've dealt with death and tragedy. We're still mourning takeoff from Migos. But, you know, we're strong, resilient people. And it's, it's, it's in, in rooted with black and brown people also, you know, being strong, growing and challenging this system, you know, for equality and, and you know, everything that comes with it. Absolutely. Yes, yes. I love hearing this so much. And just thank you all so much for adding that insight to, you know, what this means to everybody and just, you know, just the perspectives that y'all added so far. And I want to open up the chat right now. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, yeah for sure. The labels, the managers have to learn how to protect the artist better. Mm. And they have to learn how to fight for their artist. And just, you know, like, I think the reason why I have still have a relationship with every one of my groups, right? I got honored uh, a few months ago. Everybody, you know, came. Yeah, BET flew everybody in. But, I mean, it, it was work. And it's, and and I'm not talking about the QCs or or, or tops. I, I'm I'm talking about the majors. It's like fuck them at, at the end of the day because they really don't give a fuck about the artist. This that all they care about is a billing, get the record out. This that so on so on, and they have to learn because people do make mistakes. I'm sure these executives made a mistake once or another, you know, and it's just like, don't turn your back on these artists because they're fucking feeding you your salary and appreciate that. There you go. Zero, you know, on my side, baby. <laughs> yeah. Needs to be okay. said, you know, we need Absolutely. to protect each other, man. We're, we're all in this together, man. Yes. And, and now, you know, we still have time here. And I just want to, because I see there's so much activity happening in the chat. I want to give everyone a chance to, to speak and ask some questions here. So I'm going to give this a moment for the chat to open up right now. And if anyone wants to ask a question for Steve and Elliot, I see people like Caesar in there, uh, you know, dropping some nice comments in there. So go ahead, drop your um, question inside the chat right now. We can go ahead and uh, ask Steve and Elliot a question right now. And, uh, you know, also want to remind everyone that we have a follow-up uh, interaction tomorrow activity for Hip Hop History Month on the uh, patio sessions that are taking place. So be sure to, uh, you know, tune in and tap into that one. We'll remind you again at the end of this. Okay, we think we got I think we got one question coming in right now. It's from Peter. Okay, I think I just saw Peter right now. I'm going to go with Peter. Okay. I think many of us uh, of a certain age consider the 90s to be the golden age of hip hop. Do you believe that to be the case? And what do you think are the major differences between artists then and now? This is coming from Peter. 
who's the is, is it to both of us or uh it can be either or either or who wants to take the question if you need me to repeat it let me know um i mean i think we all know i mean it's definitely the golden age because it was and and i'm, I'm going to tell you why um it was the golden age besides the great music from it the cd came right so money so before the cd came we would sell an album for four dollars to retail right when the cd came we would sell it for ten dollars so the marketing cost stayed the same the album budget stayed the same everything stayed the same but there was an extra six dollar profit so now when it came time if we did a million units or we Let's just do easy math, right? If if we did if if we went platinum, which is a million, right? Now you you did ten million dollars in billing instead of four million dollars. So the executives got raises and crazy bonuses, and now the lawyers were smart enough to say, hey, you know what? For the next record, we're going to renegotiate. So instead of giving us two fifty for the second album, give us a million dollars. The the problem, what what, ha what happened though is. The labels, again, and I'm talking about the majors, got lazy, right? So when Puff went on his run, everybody wanted a Puff beat. When Wu Tang, when you know, wanted a RZA beat, everybody wanted a Pharrell beat, right? The executives never started developing other producers and other writers, but it was the golden age, and McDonald's would come in and, and pay a million dollars to sync a song. You know, the market, I you know, somebody mentioned Steve Stapp, but I was the first one to really have the marketing company, which was the Steve Rifkin company, yes, where, yes. which I took the brands and yes. used it to market all our, all our arts. So it, it was the golden age, but it was also people got fat and, and people got lazy <laughs> and, it has, and it has nothing to do with what, what's going on today. And it was just, I wish... The executives that are sitting behind the desk now at the majors that have the real budgets would go back into the street and develop a writer, develop a producer, and develop an artist. And and that's you know, you know, and 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 that's why Puff did what Puff did. That's why Jay and Dayton did what they did. That's why Russell, Leo, Rick did what they did. That's why we did what we did. Right? You know, and that's why Coach and Q, you know, you know. They're developing, and 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 the same thing with Top, and he, you know, and I and I got to give Sure credit too. He did the same thing. So, yeah. so at the end of the day, like, don't cut a fucking corner, man. Like, let's work. Yeah, I think from another, I think all of that's true. From what Steve's saying, I also when I look at the '90s and I try to say, well, you know, why do people say that that was the that's the Motown era of hip hop, right? That was the foundational thing. I also look at the artists themselves, and I feel like, as, as Steve would know, like the Mob Deeps and the uh, Wu Tanks, they were so inspired by the artists in the '80s, the ones that came before them. There was such a lineage, a connection, right? You know, I grew up thinking 1988, '87, '88 was the golden age. We used to call that the golden age of hip hop. We were coming up because we had these big artists, the Big Daddy Kanes, the Rock Kims, and all these people. The artists of the '90s were students and fans of those artists, and they never felt they could be on the level of that, but they surpassed it because they were so determined. And made such great music, you know. What I mean, they were so connected to it. So I think that when you look at the newer generations, I hope that they're drawing from that. You see it somewhat. You see Kendrick's influence or Drake's influence or 
you know, obviously Lil Wayne's influence carried forth. So I think a lot of the great art comes from a connection to what's come before you, you know, and I think something about that 90s was a magical period of like artists out there inspired by what they came up listening to as fans in the 80s, that foundational stuff we talked about with Run DMC going into the lyricism element of a KRS-One, a Rakim, Big Daddy Kane. And they was like, we're, Mob Deep wanted to be like, they could be on the same level of a Run DMC. And they put that work in, you know, it made great art because of it. Absolutely. I like that. And we have another question here from Paul, and I'm just going to order as, I, as I'm seeing here. So from Paul, uh, before the digital age of today, with data, numbers, DSPs being a deciding factor, what were some of the key aspects you looked for in an artist for management or signee or for signage? Uh, I feel like this might be directed more towards Steve, but Elliot, of course, too. Uh, what, what are your insights on this well, question? I can go first. On a magazine format, I would say like we was always determined to understand that you know, because we a lot of us were based from the magazine, we're based in New York, right? So you could think that everything that's in New York is the biggest thing uh, nationwide. So I, I realized at the time where I had to have a, le a artist that was successful, like it wasn't good. Being gold probably wasn't a standard enough. You had to be platinum. So pretty much everybody I put on the cover was a platinum level artist. Or I got real strategic where it's like uh, I may split a Jada Kiss and Nelly. I put Jada Kiss on the cover of like the 10 cities in the east coast and then the midwest and west coast worldwide i'll do nelly so i have the balance of both so i think that's how we looked at it we looked at the ras and the sales and the first week sales like 50 cent obviously brought that conversation to the forefront so fans started looking at what's the first week numbers for artists so you know that was some of sort of the data but that was kind of really a hidden rule of a lot of double xl is that you had to kind of be a platinum level because i remember when i put shine on the cover people didn't realize that shine had gone platinum you know shine had had a platinum record his first album so Pretty much all the covers I did at Double XL were, were platinum level artists because I wanted to make sure I was reaching as many eyes as I could across the nation. Absolutely. And then and then with me is, you know, I, I had the street team. So like that that was, you know, I have a corny saying, the streets don't lie. So, you know, and, and that's how I found what Three Six Mafia was about. Um and I would just listen to my street team. And what, what I would do is um, I never really cared about radio. So, but I would make my own chart for every record that I put out. So if we're putting out Elliot Wilson's single, like we say, you know what? These five stations, and I'm not even talking about rotation. I'm just talking about mix show. We'll sell 300,000 records. If we get these 15 stations, we'll do 600,000. It was always in 300,000 intervals. Mm. And that, and I'm again. I'm not talking about rotation. I'm talking about just straight mix show, and 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 that's how and and that's how I and that's how I looked at things. I didn't call retail and say, "Hey, what's going on with the store?" I, like my my research was totally different. My research was like, don't forget, I knew like if you were a kid in, in Chicago and you lived in the South Side, I knew what bus, train, what high school. Like we knew everything, and we knew how to monitor where you were going to get something, to get a sandwich after class. So, and that's how I would monitor everything. So, and we found, most of our records we found from the street team. Mm. And then I would hand it over to Maddie and so on and so on and let them do what they have to do. 
man, the power of the street team. I love it so much. Just that uh, is just I love hearing this that ground ground from the ground up perspective that you have. It's uh, truly amazing. And, and now I have I see a question coming in from Matt here, and this is it is direct towards you, Steve. Uh, Steve, you once checked Dame Dash about anti-Semitic comments he made about Lior. How do you how yeah how do we begin to reconcile Kanye's comments with what you're saying about how labels need to protect artists? What's a better way to challenge the structure? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I posted something yesterday. Um, like, everybody wants to cancel Kyrie, right? How I was raised. And like I said, you know, I had one, I was extremely close to my dad. And I don't believe ever, Elliot has mentioned the word a few times in, in today's thing, the underdog. Why kick somebody when they're down? Everybody, we've all made mistakes in life, right? So I can't tell Kanye what to believe in, what not to believe. And Kanye's like a brother to me. I truly love him like a brother. Now, I don't have to agree with what he has to say. But, you know, if, if he really has something against the Jews, the only thing that worries, that, that, that's your feeling. And, and, and I'm Jewish. Just keep it to yourself because you're so powerful that blood could get on the street. And in religion, there are so many radicals. On, on, all, on, on all aspects, you know, people could get hurt. You know, they, um, I guess, the, I, I wasn't in L.A. at the time, but there was something on the 405 saying Kanye was right over a bridge on the 405, which is the big free, you know, fuck the Jews. You know, and it was like, I don't think Kanye wants anybody to get blood on their hands. I know he doesn't want to get blood on his hands. If those are really his feelings, those are his feelings, and let him keep it to himself that way. I don't think anybody wants violence. Right? And and if he feels he got burnt, have that conversation with the person that he feels that, that he got burnt with. Right? So at, at the end of the day, it's it's about being transparent. Say it, but you you, you got to know who you are, right? With with, with, with that type of power that, that he has, he had to me. He just has to direct it a, a, a little bit differently. With Kyrie, right? If they really shut him down, like his his career could be over. Like I don't count anybody's money, right? And it, th th that's wrong. Right. And the, and the Jew and I'm Jewish and and the Jews are now all of a sudden being a bully. And I was like, nah, man, like, no, nah, fuck that. If he's if he did what he did and, you know, let's have a conversation. And if he doesn't know about the Holocaust or if he doesn't know about these things, just ex explain it. But to cut somebody out because he said, hey, man, I thought this was a good movie is wrong. And my mom, 75% of her family got killed in the Holocaust. And I had this conversation with her. And she says, no, Stephen, you do what you feel like you have to do. If somebody's down, I'm going to go lift them up. Somebody's as talented as Kyrie Irving. And I don't know the man. I met him once in my life for three seconds to introduce him to my son. So I, I think there's such hatred in the world right this second that there needs to be more communication like look at the relationship with me and Rizzo. look at the relationship that russell had with leor and, and, and rick rubin 
Look at the relationship that Puff had with Clive Davis or that L.A. Reid had with Clive Davis. Look at the relationship that Jay had with Leo. Everybody got rich. Because they were transparent with each other. And, and, and that's all it needs to be. I can't tell you who like not to like, not, you know, if you think this woman's beautiful, that, so on and so on, that's on you. But to promote violence, no. That's one thing I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have. And I, and I don't think Kanye was really trying to promote violence. I think Kanye was frustrated and just wanting answers. Absolutely. Steve, thank you so much just for that deep dive and just being very honest about your point of view and just your, your words, man. And definitely, Matt, thank you so much for that question. And, and I want to just go to uh, another question here. This is a really good one from uh, Juan. Um, what's your opinion on comments about, uh, okay, let me say it again. What's your opinion of comments by 21 Savage questioning the relevancy <laughs> of Nas? He didn't question his artistry, but his relevancy. Well, I think that yeah, I mean that's, that's become such a hot topic. I don't, I don't think it came off disrespectful, and I actually don't think it was his intent was to be disrespectful. I think he was just trying to say that you know he doesn't look at Nas as a competition in terms of like Nas's sales at this point of his career. He's not selling units that define how great he is. He's not the top seller in the market, right? Like Drake and only one at this phenomenally high first week number, right? So I think he was saying that that's different. Like what this guy's doing is different, but. You know, that's not saying someone is irrelevant. He's obviously relevant. It's great art. You know, great art isn't always defined by how much it sells, right? I mean, Steve could attest to that. You know, it wasn't the the definition of success wasn't what Wu Tang's third sales week looked like. You know what I mean? So that's what it's about. I think sometimes some of the younger generation get caught up in the numbers game of it, but I think at the end of the day, it's about great art, and it's great to see that hip hop has grown to the point where Nas, three decades later, can make a great album. You know, and then like an artist can grow and Jay could have a 444 moment and we could see our artists continue to flourish. You know, there's so many artists that are over 40 years old that are still making major contributions to hip hop. So I think it should be celebrated at all times. Absolutely. Steve, you have any insight on that one, too, from your perspective? I I read it and I it went and went in, you know, when I saw it, it went in one ear and out the other. I mean, <laughs> you know, Nas is, you know. And I and I love Savage. I mean, as a person and a, and as an artist. But I mean, Nas is a goat. Like, how do you, you know, I'm what Elliot said. I'm agreeing with Elliot a, a trillion percent. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And we love Twenty One again. And I don't think Twenty One meant it in a disrespectful way, but it came across that way. So, and he came back and he, you know, he went back to Twitter and he said, you know, his comment that he's not here to disrespect legends. He obviously knows who Nas is. I just think he's getting caught up in some of the competitiveness of, you know, this is he's out there having the top selling album of the year. Right. Out of nowhere with him and Drake. And he's looking at it from that perspective. But I don't think that sales numbers is going to define the success of this runner that Nas has had with these albums with Hip Boy, which have all been stellar. These four albums, you know. Absolutely. And even thinking about it, just I was listening to the Rep Radar podcast uh, last night, Elliot, and you were talking to Freddie Gibson, his manager. And I guess they talked about just like how come it's always such a controversial thing for, you know, hip hop artists to have like a legacy career and like like it doesn't get challenged like the rock artists do or whatever. And it, and it's like I think it's, it's really great to see, you know, perspectives like yours just to say like, no, what, what it means for someone like Nas just to even, you know, still be brought up that shows you his relevance, relevancy and his impact. As I'm sure Steve could tell you, like we with hip hop, we still talk about somebody fell off, right? Like the, the artist gets big and then they fall off. They're past their prime. You know, now a lot of these great artists that Steve worked with in the 90s are still could still make music today that's relevant. It's gonna move the needle. 
You know, we never seen that in hip hop. We never see, we never allowed our artists to truly grow the way they have now. So yes, I mean, do people anticipate another Jay-Z album? Would they like to hear another Jay-Z album? They they do. And this guy's in his fifties. He's the leader. Like, just like, he's a goat, just like Nas is a goat. And it's like, and there's no there's no expiration date anymore on these artists' careers, you know. So that should be celebrated. Cause I be, I'm pretty sure 21 Savage is gonna make want to make a record when he's in his 40s, you know. Absolutely. And now, you know, we're coming up on our final 10 minutes here. So I'm gonna try to get some more questions in here. And I see one coming from Caesar. Uh Caesar, uh, his question is: I know you guys do a lot with both East and West Coast artists. Have you ever worked with or have any interest in working with current artists from the Midwest hip hop scene? Well, the first artist I ever signed was from the Midwest. Buster. <laughs> Buster. Yeah. Um, man, music is music. You know, if it rocks, I'm, yeah. I mean, you know, Fat Joe, when, when I got on it, he said something, you know, I went, I went into Memphis. You know, I, I signed 3-6 Project Pat, Gangsta Boo, the whole Hypnotized Minds thing, right? I signed an artist from Africa by the name of Akon. I signed an artist from Mississippi by David Banner, Baton Island. Wu-Tang, you know, so it's like if, if I feel it in my bones, I don't give a shit where the fuck you're from. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Absolutely. I do the guy Spino, I'm doing something with him in St. Louis. I think he has his roots in St. Louis. So I'm I'm doing some kind of profile for him very soon. I'll be I'll be in St. Louis. And I don't think I've ever been to St. Louis, uh, maybe once before, but so I'm excited to go out there. Um I I definitely remember I remember being at double XL. And uh, Nelly was coming out and everybody thought it was, it was the same week Nelly was coming out. Lil' Kim was coming out and everybody, you know, New York's lives, living in New York. Everybody's like, Lil' Kim's going to have the great first week and, you know, lead the culture. And Nelly came out of nowhere and put up a big number. And I remember being like, oh, my God, like, who's this guy? Country grammar. Like, we all had the advanced cassette and nobody was like paying attention that this guy had massive records on this album. E.I. and all these records were there. But, you know, we had our biases at that time. And Nelly definitely shut a lot of people up and broke that door open. So, you know, and like Steve said, now with the digital age and streaming, you know, all the worlds are connected. So, you know, it's easier to break through where those barriers are there. And, you know, it's important to go out to the community like Steve used to do and connect with these artists. I love to go travel with Rap Radar Podcast to go to that person's city. We just went to Detroit yesterday to sit with Babyface Ray. So, you know, you got to go out there and you got to be active. And, you know, and if you have young talent out there, they got to step up and be noticed. Come on, Elliot. Let's get on a bus and travel the country one last time. There you go. That's a show, man. That's a show, man. I got to get the budget behind us, Steve. All right. Let, let Golden Voice promote it, please. <laughs> we'll, we'll gladly, we'll, we'll gladly put it. We'll find some talent, though. We'll find some talent. That's right. Amazing. You know, when Master P was blowing up, I was like, like, this is how brilliant the man is. It's like, you know, talking about putting out records consistently and he was yeah. independent, like, He's doing what he did in the 90s, what everybody's doing, doing yes. today. I remember so, being at the source and him sending those advanced CDs, like every week messaging yeah. another album. So, so I went on the road, and that's how I found 3-6. I, 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 I put myself on tour. I may believe I was an artist. I visited radio stations. I would have them come. I would go to a radio station, meet me at the local record store, and everybody said the next guys out of the South that we're going to blow it is, is a, you know, the Sympathized Mind Scan, which was 3-6. Yeah. Amazing. 
And, and, you know, I have a very last question here as we come up on our final, like, roughly, like, seven or so minutes here. And it's coming from Taji. Taji, holding it down from the Golden Voice podcast team. Big shout out to Taji here. His question is, how, as a podcast media outlet, do you decide between airing a hot take or choosing morale? What's the process like? And he gives an example of the shop removing Ye's interview. So which one? Uh, he, uh, the example that he gives is the shop uh, TV series um, uh, removing Ye's interview. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I just try to do what we, with me and B.D., especially the podcast, we try to do what's culturally relevant. A lot of that press run was like, well, what is he promoting? Like, what's the agenda? You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, there has to be, to me, everything that we mostly do with Rapper is rooted in music. Like, somebody's current projects relevant or about to come out um, or the impact of culture is going on at that time. You know, we're not just ch- chasing guests because we know they're controversial. And if they say this, it's going to get us this amount of views, like we don't go chasing that. We do what we feel is right, um, has integrity, stuff that we're actually listening to, stuff that we are connected to. Yeah, we're not looking at things of like, well, if we get this person, this person will shake things up and we'll get a lot of people to listen to our, our podcast. That's not, that's never our goal. Absolutely. I really like that so much too, because as I'm listening to the Rap Radar podcast and everyone should be listening to the Rap Radar podcast, it's available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Um, definitely, you know, it's always the amount of research that y'all put into it and the amount of care that y'all put into the questions that you ask and just the the perspectives that you come from, even with the most controversial topics or even the more hard hitting questions that maybe artists don't want to talk about. I still think about what y'all were talking about with Nipsey Hussle and some of the topics that y'all had with him and, you know, even just the emotion that he showed in the interview from the questions that y'all were asking him, it was it was just meant so much. And I, I think that's the the amount of care that I like that y'all have put into your interviews for so long and for so many years since launching that platform that I don't see too many people doing that. It's kind of weird. It's almost like people sometimes make comments like, oh, you research too much. You're doing too much or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. But I love that stuff. So again, the Rap Radar podcast, please be sure to check that out. It yeah. means it means so much. It's kind of connected to what Steve said, which is why he still has a relationship with these artists. It's like, it's about that trust. It's about integrity. It's about respect. You know, we, we there were big consequences if things weren't moved that way back in the day. Right. So that's how we move, you know, and like, and I, I want to have that. I want to build a space that is trusted, has integrity. And out of that, you have these relationships that'll last, you know, and it, that, you don't go for the quick grab. It never pays off. <laughs> And then, like, the super very last question that I'm going to throw in here very quickly, I just saw it at the very end. It is coming from Marcus Johnson. Big shout out to Marcus. Um, how will you guys be celebrating and acknowledging 50 years of hip-hop next year? Well, I'm turning up. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of 03, like, the 50-cent phenomenon, right? Like, so, like, and that's, that's going to be 20 years. So I'm excited hip-hop's 50th year, but also I look at 2003 – like you said, that was the MJ 50 cover, like to be part of the whole thing of 50 cents phenomenon. You know, certain groups come along and it's a phenomenon. They take over culture at all levels. You know, like we saw with Run DMC, like Steve and Steve were saying, we saw it with Wu-Tang, I saw it with 50 cents. So I'm thinking about 03 also and how important that year was to me in my life, and my career. Um, so that's 20 years looking back on that was a very exciting time. But yeah, just the pride that hip hop's here, man, like Steve, Steve and I were saying, it's like, there was this constant need, this validation that what we like and what we believe in is going to be here forever. You know, this isn't a fad. You know, Run DMC would do these interviews and they would say hip hop is here to stay. And I believe them. And they were right. You know, so 50 years, I'm here for the next 50. Absolutely. And I'm going to be uh, doing some type of tour for, for the hip hop 50. There you go. I'm pulling up. 
Will, will, will your son, uh, Steve, will he be involved in, in the behind the scenes on it? Because I know you're working with your son on your current endeavor, Spring Sound. So will he be involved in that as well? Yeah. So all three of my kids were pretty much, you know, um, Alex, who's my oldest, is, is my partner on Spring Sound. You know, and that's really that that's paying homage to my dad and my uncle who had Spring. And then my youngest son. He's an artist, but not an artist yet. He's, he's still trying to figure it out, but he put out a record himself and he did around four or five million streams on his own just because of who he knows and just like he has the marketing capability of just knowing how, how to market. And um, my daughter's going to go to law school and she's going to run the business from a business standpoint, you know, point of view. So um, that that's where we are. Amazing. I love it so much. Elliot, Steve, I almost want to say right now, thank y'all so much for coming here for this panel, participating in this, sharing your stories, sharing your honesty and just your perspectives on your legacies and your careers, what y'all have done for the entire industry as a whole, moving forward behind the scenes and working with these amazing talents. It means so much to myself, and I can imagine, I can speak for everyone here in the chat and everyone else that'll be watching this in the pre-recorded uh, conversation later on. It, it means a lot to everybody. So just thank you so much for just giving us something to believe in with the amazing music and the amazing stories that y'all have archived and helped put out there and share with the masses across the globe. It means a lot to everyone here. So from the Golden Voice podcast, Golden Voice AG presents the Black Equity Group at AGGV Black. We mean it so much. Thank you for coming here today's panel. Thank, thank you. you. And there you have it, everyone. This was such a epic conversation with two icons, man. I can't say it enough right now. Elliot, Steve, thank you so much for coming to our podcast, coming to our panel, for just sharing your voices and your insight about your experiences in the industry. It meant a lot. I mean, it was just so cool to see the different stories. I mean, to me, being a big nerd of the XXL magazine back in the heyday, go Elliot Wilson sharing those stories about issue number 45. Man, that was such an epic story. But then to hear Steve's perspective on, you know, working with Mob Deep and, and Wu-Tang and just everything that he was doing, just kind of making some classic albums, just what it means to hear those stories. It, it meant so much. And it was so mind blowing too. the fact that Elliot and Steve, this is their first time really ever coming together. They never done anything like this together out of their long tenured careers. They never had like a, you know, dual sit down conversation with both of them there. So it was just awesome to kind of hear them talk to one another and bounce ideas off one another too, on top of everything else, man. So we're so glad we were able to take this conversation and share this with y'all for the Golden Voice podcast. So it means so much. And if you want to follow Steve and Elliot on social media, go ahead and tap in with them on Instagram. That is for Steve Rifkin. It is Steve Rifkin. Once again, on Instagram for Steve Rifkin, it's simply at Steve Rifkin. For Elliot Wilson on Instagram, it's at Elliot Wilson Goat. Once again, that's at Elliot Wilson Goat for Instagram. For Twitter, they're both on Twitter as well. It's simply at Steve Rifkin on Twitter. And once again, that's at Steve Rifkin for Twitter. And then for Twitter for Elliot Wilson, it's simply at Elliot Wilson. Once again, that's at Elliot Wilson. And of course, if you want to go even further, tap in with them on LinkedIn. Just type in their names. They're on there as well. And of course, for Elliot, if you want to tap in with his podcast, the Rap Radar Podcast, go ahead and follow it on all your major podcast platforms. Simply just type in the Rap Radar Podcast. That's Elliot Podcast with his co-host, B. 
super dope content and interviews. So once again, the Rap Radar podcast available on all your major and favorite podcast platforms. Just simply type in the Rap Radar podcast. And of course, right here, you know, the Golden Voice podcast, we're going to come back with our regular programming uh, next week. We're going to have an interview with Junior Mesa. But until then, you got to check in with us here for our following shows that we have coming up for the month of November, December. And of course, next year, go to goldenvoice.com. Once again, that's goldenvoice.com to get all the information about our shows. And then, of course, at Golden Voice on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to follow us on there. And then, of course, if you're really enjoying this podcast, right, you really feeling this podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, wherever that is, and just let us know how you feel about the podcast with that five-star review. And if you can leave a comment, please leave a comment on there too, because it helps out for visibility as well. It helps grow this audience as we're delivering this amazing content for you. And we want to kind of keep sharing with more new people. So go ahead and spread that love. Go ahead and spread that good word about the Golden Voice podcast. And it goes without saying, a major shout out to our podcast team. That's our executive producer, Rhea. That's our marketing team, Carrie, Christina, Lindsay. That's the artwork and creative coming from Saeed. I'm telling you, Saeed's just killing it with the artwork. I was like, Saeed, can you put some artwork together for this special bonus episode? He's like, I got you, my man. So shout out to Saeed holding it down. And of course, press coming from Shay and Taji always holding it down. And speaking of press, if you have any press inquiries about the podcast or just about Golden Voice in general, hit us up at press at goldenvoice.com. Once again, that's press at goldenvoice.com. My goodness, it's so phenomenal right here. Again, I, I'm still in, in awe about this conversation we had with Steve and Elliot, but this is just a bonus episode. We'll be back again with our regular program interview with Junior Mesa. But until then, if you don't know by now, I'm your host, Jarvis Smith. This is the Golden Voice Podcast, a special bonus episode just for you. And I'm out.